0: This is Father Mark Bulos with The Bible as Literature podcast. When biblical interpreters decide on capitalization when translating Greek or Hebrew to a modern language, they impose two layers of subjectivity. First, they impose their assumption about a word's elevated or discounted importance shutting readers out of the text and preventing them from hearing the author's voice. Second, they create a distinction between words that does not exist in the original text. If there is a difference between the words spirit, spirit, and spirit as they appear in Luke chapter 1, the original text did not use our modern system of capitalization to differentiate between them. Syntax, context, and function are crucial to unlocking a biblical term. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, an interesting functional connection to the book of Acts helps shed some light on the importance of John the Baptist and the Spirit. In which he grows. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 80. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hey! Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos,
1: And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 455 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the things that frustrates me about scholarship, Richard, and you and I have worked together for years, and we've gone back and forth with this, is that scholars often hide behind a pretense or a veneer of objectivity but like the rest of us still impose their biases for example in luke chapter 1 verse 80 there is a great example of legitimate skepticism and objectivity we have the word pnevmati that appears in the greek and in translation the word is rendered spirit with a lowercase s this makes complete sense Because there's no reason, based on the original Greek, to impose a capital S in the translation of the word nevmati. But elsewhere in chapter one, based on syntax, the translators, or perhaps people rendering earlier versions of the Greek manuscript as it's been copied and handed down over the centuries, have made the decision at some point along the line to start capitalizing and then capitalizing in translation the first letter of the word Pnevmati, where they think it's a noun versus where they have decided or believe it's not a noun. When the original text, which was meant to be read aloud in the original setting, did not decide that for its addressees, meaning that you would hear the text read aloud and you would hear the word Nevmati read aloud And there would be no simple solution as to whether or not it was referring to the spirit of God or the spirit of Elijah or the spirit of Zacharias or the spirit of Isaiah or the spirit of whomever in the story or the spirit of Mary in the Magnificat, rejoicing in the Lord. You would have to hear and from the context, just like in the case of the Hebrew language where there were no vowels, you would have to hear and from the context, You, as the one announcing the text to the assembly, would have to vocalize the text. That's why the reader has to pay attention in the book of Revelation. Let the reader beware. But once the copyist or the translator, in the case of the New American Standard Bible or the RSV or the King James, once that individual decides, we're going to put a capital S here and a lowercase s here, that decision is made and something is lost in translation. So this pretense of objectivity, I can just hear the panel discussion when the translators get together at the end of their work week to discuss verse 80 and why they felt it was important and what their justification was for not capitalizing the word spirit. I can bet they have very good intelligent arguments as to why they didn't capitalize the word spirit, and I happen to agree with them. But then, Richard, why capitalize it elsewhere? Because once they capitalize it elsewhere, they are locking the one hearing the New American Standard Bible translation into their decision about what the word spirit means in
1: translation, and that is doing an injustice to the author's text. When we really think about what it means to read a text versus hear a text and what details are available to which one, I can't hear the difference between a lowercase and an uppercase. But there was a time when everything was written in majuscules, which is uppercase, and then later on, lowercase started to be introduced in Greek. And then decisions were made about certain nouns. And, you know, these are always in flux anyway in different languages. If you read the writings of Benjamin Franklin, you'll see in English, he didn't even consistently capitalize words. And he was certainly capitalizing words that we would never capitalize today because it was kind of German-ish sounding when he wrote, if you can say that. We really need to keep in our mind what this is when one hears the text, what one notices, as opposed to when one reads with their eyes and notices things. So I want this to be very clear because we make so many assumptions about reading the Bible as literate people. But this is a new era when we have a majority of people who read with their eyes. For much of written history The text was only written in order to remind even the reader what was being said. When you read back in the day, you read aloud even if there was no one else around you because that's how it was intended to be, let's say, expressed or consumed or interacted with. It was supposed to be out loud. Then when we make decisions about uppercase and lowercase, it can be distracting because it's a new distinction. Now, granted, there's been a long manuscript history that included majuscules and minuscules, capital letters and lowercase letters, yes. But those were for a very, very small elite who even cared. It was for those who were hearing the text that the text was addressed and for whom the text was written. So some of these decisions that translators and editors are making are moot when it comes to those who are listening to the text. So that's something also, whenever you're interpreting a biblical text, you have to be clear in your mind. Is this something that an editor would make for people who read with their eyes, or is this a distinction that you can hear with your ears? Because that makes a lot of difference when one is interacting with the text.
0: I want to point out to our listeners that what the translators have done in Luke chapter 1, is make a decision to only capitalize spirit based on its syntax. So whenever it is located next to the word agios, for example, in verse 15, bnevmatos agiu, which is translated holy spirit, whenever it is located next to the word holy, they capitalize it. But who's to say that the word spirit appearing elsewhere doesn't pertain to God? Sometimes it seems that it pertains to an individual. Obviously, in the case of the Magnificat, Mary is referring to her spirit. But when we're talking about John the Baptist, even when it doesn't have the article the, it's still not fair to the original author for the translators or the copyists to impose something that wasn't part of the original story. Because you are making a decision. You are saying, well, obviously it's a noun when syntactically it's located next to the word holy. You're making a decision. I agree with you not making a decision in verse 80. But why do you have to make a decision in verse 15 that takes away the freedom for the addressee to think for themselves in verse 80? Your decision in verse 15 cancels a decision in verse 80, and you're imposing yourself. You are putting yourself between the scriptural God who is speaking and the conscience of the addressee of the text in verse 80. This is the problem of translation, which is a form of interpretation. This is why the original languages are so critical. Now because your premise is a Western language, your response will be, well, obviously, Father Mark, it's a noun, and nouns are capitalized. That's not obvious in Semitic languages, and it's not true in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. There was no lowercase. There was no differentiation between a noun, a verb, an article, a conjunction. There were no spaces. Just as in the case of the Hebrew, where the text was not vocalized, in the Greek you had to decide. When you heard the word nevmati, or even when you read it aloud in the assembly, you had to decide which meant you had to do the work of reading and hearing the entire story of Luke. And in this case, as we unpack
1: verse 80, of hearing the entire diptych of Luke acts. The problem that we see is the article, because in 15, in English, we say filled with the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, depending on which translation. But if you look at the Greek, there is no article. It's simply you it's perfectly okay to translate that as he shall be filled with a Holy Spirit. We can say that in English, and that's a perfectly fine translation that would be a possible interpretation of that phrase, a Holy Spirit. When we say the Holy Spirit, we're assuming that there's just one, when it's not clear from the Greek. So there is even this emphasis to capitalize because we have the this is how fine-grained this technique gets, because in the SBL version of the New Testament, is not capitalized, and there is no article. So this is an English translation tradition to put a the in, which does not appear in the Greek, and to capitalize, which does not appear in the later Greek manuscripts. And so we do have an interpretation that is added on to the level of the text. Because if we were to translate it as simply a Holy Spirit, which an original hearer could be hearing in their mind as they're listening to it and making sense of the text that they're hearing, it could be it's going to be filled with a Holy Spirit. And this happens three times in Luke chapter 1, in verse 15 and in verse 35 pnevma agion. now that one, it's a little bit tricky because it's the beginning of a sentence, and so Pnevma is capitalized, but that's just because it's the beginning of the sentence, I don't think that's because it's the Holy Spirit, because there's definitely no article there. And in 41, Pnevma-tosayu, no article, three times, and I think there might be a fourth as well. But anyway, I'm not going to belabor the point. We have it appear without an article throughout Luke chapter 1. So the capitalization that we use in English is not motivated by a capital letter in the manuscript, and it's not motivated by an article in the manuscript. There is an imposition of a way of reading this that I would not say comes from the text. The hearer doesn't matter because we don't have capital letters, but the hearer does hear a the which does not appear in the original. So these are the distinctions that we have to realize if we're going to be reading the Bible in a sophisticated way and interpreting in a sophisticated way what a hearer hears and what a reader sees.
0: And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. So we'll break the verse in half today, Richard, just to make the point of how significant this question is. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. Which spirit? That is not a small question in chapter 1 of Luke. It is not a small question in the book of Acts, and we'll see why Acts suddenly becomes germane in just a minute here. But which spirit are we talking about? Because this is John the Baptist. This is not just anybody. This is the man upon whom the spirit rested in his mother's womb. This is the forerunner. This is the man of whom we heard in the Gospel of Mark, who prepares the way of the Lord, who makes straight the path in the wilderness. This is a very important character in the storyline of the New Testament. So if we think about him in context of the biblical narrative, which we must do without forgetting the specifics of the Lucan setting and context. Within the context of the biblical storyline, it is not good if he's strong in his spirit. No way. That is not okay. When someone is strong in their spirit, you should have red alarms flashing in your brain in the story of Scripture. So whether it's the Spirit of God, or whether His Spirit is informed by the Spirit of God, or controlled by the Spirit of God, or overwritten by the light of God's instruction, we better hope that the strength that is animating, enlivening, filling, vivifying John the Baptist is not His, or this story is going in the wrong direction. So, I'm not making a claim about what one should say about nevmati in verse 80, except to say that it's a problem if we're talking about John's spirit without reference to the spirit of the scriptural God. This isn't a debate about the ontology of the Holy Spirit, it's a critique. Of translation, because I guarantee you that an English reader of this story will immediately downplay the significance of the word Ipnevmati here because the capitalization of the S was dropped, or worse, they will make it into something that pertains to human growth and development and strength and do a retreat about how to build yourself up, just like John the Baptist, which is a betrayal of the story. So once again, the invitation, the challenge is to really make the effort to pay attention to the nuance and not trust the translations, because these stories are so beautiful and so life-giving if you put the effort into the stories and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Dr. Benton, you and I noodled on this second part of the verse for some time because of this really interesting word, anadixis. And you were going through different manuscripts, were trying to figure out where else does this word appear? because on a first search, we could only find it here in the Gospel of Luke. But then, it popped up. Where? In the book of Acts,
1: in chapter 1, verse 24. It refers to the manifestation, or the calling, or the appointment of somebody. This was the moment it's being prefigured here in this verse of the moment when John the Baptist is going to be revealed to be the one who is going to be making the way straight. I love this verse because it feels like a true prequel to Mark chapter 1. Like, How did John the Baptist appear? How did everything happen? And it seems like you could just take chapter one of Luke and put it as chapter zero of Mark, the prologue of Mark, and it would fit perfectly because then in Mark verse one of chapter one, it's John the Baptist who's now making his proclamation. And it is clear because he's speaking the words of the prophets from of old and so by quoting his predecessors, this is how he's established as the one who is speaking on behalf of God because he's speaking the words of God. I love that this is the way that this word is used. When you have the word appearing elsewhere, it's when Jesus sends out the 70 in Luke, and then when he finds the replacement to Judas in Acts. So it's showing, proclaiming, The successors or the messengers on his behalf, his apostles. That's how this word is being used here. We have it used elsewhere in Greek literature and in the Apocrypha, where it's being used for the different positions. But specifically in the New Testament, it's used around sending out the apostles or showing that John the Baptist is indeed the one speaking on behalf of God, which relates to the spirit by which he speaks. But like you said before, Father, until he speaks, you don't know what spirit he's growing strong with. When the breath that he breathes in comes out as God's words, then you can say, okay, we have it on good evidence that this is a Holy Spirit because there's holy stuff coming out of this mouth. And when the breath brings holy words, then it's a good chance it's a Holy Spirit. And this is how you understand, and I'm specifically using a in this case, just because I like kind of tweaking the translation tradition that we have saying the. I'm not saying the, I'm saying a on purpose. This reminds
0: me a little bit of the Gospel of Matthew, because it does have that militaristic overtone, especially when coupled with this passage from Acts, because On the one hand, there's this shepherdism metaphor once again, the shepherdism paradigm where John the Baptist is living in the deserts, living in the wilderness, it's plural, which is kind of interesting, until the day of his public appearance, which is this unique word. And it appears once, which makes it even more important. Father Paul has pointed that out many times. It's his appearance to Israel, but this unique word links it to this passage in Acts, which talks about the selection, the manifestation, the showing of those who were appointed by God to occupy the ministry and apostleship from which Judas, Judas Judah, turned aside. So you have John the Baptist on the outskirts waiting to come in to Judah. The scene is set. We are waiting now for the advent of the Messiah, his general, his apostle, John the Baptist is on the outskirts waiting to come in and do the business. You have this allusion already to the betrayal, which in the end, once again, is not about the person of Judas. We're not talking about a person or a people in an ontological sense. These are functional characters. Because remember that in Deuteronomy, once you are brought into the land, you become the next one to be brought out. In Decoding Genesis, Father Paul introduces this beautiful, beautiful term, which is much better than chosenness. It's representativeness. Israel is representative of the nations, which means we're all the same. We all put our pants on the same way. So if Israel is representative of the Gentiles, you, O Theophilus, the lovers of God, the Gentile church to which Luke is addressed, you now have been brought into the land Which means, as we heard in the Magnificat, you can be brought out and you will be brought out because everybody is laid low. Because once you're brought in and you hear the story of Deuteronomy, you realize that you are the proud that need to be scattered in the imagination of your hearts. That's how it works. So you are the betrayer, you are the people occupying Judah now, and John the Baptist in the story addressed to you (laughs) is coming to take you out. That's how it works. It's literature. It's literature. When you hear a story, if you are hearing it, now you have to put yourself into the mind of the characters being addressed. In other words, to hear Luke, you have to understand the perspective of the Gentile church in late antiquity, because it's not addressed to the church of 2022. It's addressed to a specific church in the Roman era. But the church to which it's addressed, even though it's talking about Judas's betrayal in Acts, is a Gentile church. That's how we have to hear the clever pressure of the biblical narrative. And once again, you don't want to be in Judah when John the Baptist comes bringing the fire and brimstone of the biblical tradition. It's good news for the poor, but it's not good news for you, O Theophilus.
1: And as John the Baptist is proclaiming this, I find it, like you said, Father, interesting that it says the deserts. That's very rare to find this in the plural, actually. And it makes me think that before the day of his being revealed, he's all over the wilderness. He is like a good shepherd who's checking out all OACs, knowing where all the places are that he can take his sheep. He needs to become very familiar with his stomping ground as a shepherd for the flock of God. And as he spends his time in the deserts, he is waiting for that day when it's going to be revealed that he is speaking the words of the Lord. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father.
0: You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.